Welcome to the Rutgers Oral History Archives podcast. The Rutgers Oral History Archives, ROHA for short, is dedicated to documenting the life stories of men and women in communities throughout Rutgers University and New Jersey. ROHA makes those oral history interviews available to students and scholars on our digital archive at oralhistory.rutgers.edu. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at at sign history. Subscribe to the ROHA podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on SoundCloud. I'm Kate Rizzi. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, Caitlin Wiesner, who has conducted a very interesting series of oral history interviews over the past year. Thank you, Caitlin, for coming in to join me in this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Caitlin Wiesner is a doctoral student in the Department of History in the School of Arts and Sciences here at Rutgers, New Brunswick. She currently is the John Chambers Oral History Graduate Fellow. Caitlin is working on her dissertation in which she is researching black women in the feminist movement against sexual violence set in the context of the war on crime. Today we're going to talk about the interviews that Caitlin conducted with women who were part of this movement. Let's find out a little bit more about Caitlin. Where did you grow up? So I am a lifelong resident of the state of New Jersey. I graduated from Ocean City High School in uh, Cape May County, New Jersey back in 2011. I then um, went to my undergraduate at the College of New Jersey, formerly Trenton State. I graduated with my bachelor's in history and women's and gender studies in 2015. At what point did you become interested in studying history? My interest in history started very young. Um, I was lucky to have parents who were noticed an early interest in history in me and really took a lot of steps to support that. And that eventually led me to take AP history courses when I was in high school. That in turn led to me pursuing the history major when I was an undergraduate at the College of New Jersey and eventually to become a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at Rutgers University all of which would not have been possible without the great support of teachers and professors that I had along the way. What specifically brought you to the Department of History here at Rutgers, New Brunswick? When I was an undergraduate at the College of New Jersey, uh, my mentor was um, a really dear professor in the, she had a dual post in the Department of History and the Department of Women and Gender Studies, and that was Anne-Marie Nicolosi. And I took her course women in American history, and she recognized my interest in the subject um, and my enthusiasm for the subject matter. And as I spoke with her about my desire to go to grad school, to learn how to make history, as it were, to be part of this production of historical knowledge, she told me about her undergraduate days and later her graduate school days um, at Rutgers University. And Rutgers University, as she put it, if you are doing anything relating to gender and history, Rutgers University is the place to be. And taking her advice, I applied. I was fortunate enough to be accepted. And I found that what she said was really true to this day, that the history department at Rutgers is a place where Gender and women's history are really core to so many projects that are being developed there. All of the faculty, whether or not they're explicitly in the Women and Gender Caucus, 
see gender and women's history as something integral to telling these big stories. And it's been such a great place to do the work that I do, and I've had fantastic support in doing it. As a doctoral student in the history department, what are some of your accomplishments in terms of publications and also fellowships? During my time here in the Department of History, um, I've been part of something called the Scarlet and Black Project. It's also called um, the Research Committee on Enslaved and Disenfranchised Population in Rutgers History. This project began back in 2016 after then-Chancellor Edwards um, endowed a fund to begin research into the relationship between the history of Rutgers University, or as it was then known, Queens College, uh, and the history of slavery, and also the history of Native American land dispossession. Uh, the research that I helped to conduct as part of a member of this committee be uh, was featured in the first volume of Scarlet and Black. I also revisited the project for the second volume of Scarlet and Black, which looked at the later time period from the end of the Civil War up into the mid-20th century. Uh, the most recent publication, Scarlet and Black Volume 2, just came out this month, actually, from Rutgers University Press. In addition to these publications, I am also, my research has been supported by the philanthropic educational organization International, the Mellon Foundation through the New York Historical Society, where I'm currently the Mellon Predoctoral Fellow in Women's History. I've also been supported by the Madeline Langle Research Fellowship at Smith College, where I've been able to conduct archival research for my own dissertation. How did you discover this topic? It all seems to lead back to the College of New Jersey. It really does. In one of my courses there, I was assigned a really fantastic book by Danielle McGuire called At the Dark End of the Street. It came out in about 2010. The book itself looks at African-American women during the period of the civil rights movement and retells the story of the civil rights movement with African-American women and their protests against sexual violence in the center. This was a telling of the civil rights movement that I had never heard before. But it also spoke to me in that I was really amazed to see that there were these African-American women in Alabama who were speaking out about sexual violence, specifically the sexual violence that they experienced at the hands of white men who were shoring up white supremacy and Jim Crow by using sexual violence, that these protests by black women were going on decades before uh, the feminist movement against sexual violence began, which, as historians will tell us, began in the late 1960s into the early 1970s as an outgrowth of the women's liberation movement. All of this was going on well before that. And that was really fascinating to me. So at the direction of Anne-Marie Nicolosi and a few other professors, I began reaching back further into the historical record. And what I found there was that historians had uncovered this really robust tradition of African-American women speaking out about sexual violence. But being inquisitive, I wanted to know how that tradition carried over after the period that Danielle McGuire was speaking about into the 60s and 70s at the time when the women's liberation movement claimed the issue of rape and battering as core feminist issues, 
because a lot was changing in African-American history and African-American life during this period that followed the civil rights movement. And it was when I took a course at um, Rutgers University during my early years in the program, I took a course with Dr. Donna Murch. Uh, the course was called Race, Criminalization, and the Carceral State. And that gave me a new framework for considering how is this tradition of African-American women breaking the silence about sexual violence, what is it up against after the civil rights era? And what I discovered is what it's up against is on the one hand, there's more public recognition of sexual violence as a social problem requiring that needed to be addressed. On the other hand, there is this really expansion of state apparatuses and agencies that are really concerned about controlling crime. This is part of Lyndon B. Johnson's war on crime that continues straight up through uh, President Reagan in the 1980s. And the results of a lot of these agencies and acts and laws and organizations is to expand policing in the late 20th century United States, but in ways that really fall harshly upon African-American communities. Um, and they experience new hostility from the state and a new criminalization of black life in protest in this period. So these two trends together informed why I want to talk about African-American women's anti-rape activism in the war on crime. How does this tradition that stretches all the way back to the 1860s at least, how does that tradition adapt to new political challenges that are raised in the 1970s and 1980s due to the war on crime? As a part of your research, you spoke to eyewitnesses who were a part of this movement. And you did that through being the John Chambers Oral History Graduate Fellow. And I'm just going to give a little background about Professor Chambers. Professor Emeritus of History John White Clay Chambers is a very important person in both the history of the Rutgers Oral History Archives and also in the teaching and practice of oral history at Rutgers. For many years, Professor Chambers taught oral history classes that were associated with ROHA. He's also been a steward and a leader for the Rutgers Oral History Archives. And over the years, he has mentored countless undergraduates, myself included, who were engaged in oral history. In 2018, the John Chambers Oral History Graduate Fellowship was established to foster the use of oral history and scholarship for graduate students in history. Pamela Walker was the first Chambers Fellow. You are the second Chambers Fellow. The fellowship is supported by the Ware and Cobb Foundations and through gifts made by donors. What did the John Chambers Oral History Graduate Fellowship allow you to do in your research? The John White Clay Chambers Fellowship allowed me to conduct in-person oral history interviews, um, as well as some interviews that were conducted uh, via Skype or FaceTime when travel or illness simply was not permissible. Um, but there were 11 African-American anti-rape activists who I was able to interview through the funds acquired from this fellowship. They belonged to three organizations in different cities. Uh, the first group was the Chicago Sexual Assault Services Network. And of this group, I was able to interview Mary Scott Boria, Sandra Bishop, Phyllis Penice, Sylvia Rush, and Beryl Fitzpatrick. The second group was Philadelphia Women Organized Against Rape, otherwise known as Philadelphia War. 
And the women there who I interviewed were Wadia Nelson, Joan Ashton, Samia Cherry, and Deborah Johnson. The final group was the Washington, D.C. Rape Crisis Center. And there I had two interviews, one with Loretta Ross and one with Nikenji Ture. All of these women were active in anti-rape organizing in their respective organizations between the years of 1974 and 1994, which are the date parameters of my dissertation. What was it like for you as an interviewer meeting someone for the first time, perhaps, and asking probing questions about her life history and her activism? This was a challenge for me to navigate from the beginning of this project. At once, I'm researching these very political questions about how certain responses to sexual violence are changing in the 1970s and 1980s and what African-American women's role was in formulating and changing these questions and developing solutions. And I knew from the beginning that while this is ultimately a project about someone's activism, much of that activism connects to personal histories of trauma. Many of the women who I interviewed experienced sexual trauma at one or more points in their lives, and these incidents did, as they, rep as they reported, drive them to anti-rape advocacy. So I was somewhat nervous about asking them about their activism in ways that could potentially rip open old traumas. And during the interviews themselves, we spent a good bit of time before I actually dove into my questions developing some rapport. We would typically talk about current events, things going on in our individual lives, something to build a little trust between us. It also helped that I could speak to, based on my own knowledge of the secondary sources and the history of the anti-rape movement, I could speak to historical developments in that movement in ways that let them know that I was basically one of them, that I knew what they were doing, I knew the stakes of what they were doing, that helped to build some trust and rapport between us. And what I found was that most of the women that I spoke to, I would almost say all of them, really did not have any negative emotional reactions to speaking about this period in their lives. And what I attribute that to is that while many of them did experience some form of sexual violence in their lives that motivated their anti-rape activism, becoming activists was for them a way of processing that trauma, of trying to move beyond it and develop from it. I had one woman, Sylvia Rush, who was a part of the Chicago Sexual Assault Services Network, tell me in her words that through her anti-rape activism, she helped more people than her rapist hurt. And that was very evocative to me. So really before I even happened upon them, much of their trauma they had resolved on their own and were quite comfortable speaking openly about it. In terms of pursuing oral history, I was a relative novice at doing oral history. The first oral interviews I had ever conducted were for this project, and I was very nervous at the outset for conducting these interviews because I felt that I did not have the training, quote unquote, to do this kind of history. I had been trained in my undergraduate and graduate courses about how to go into archives, how to work in archives, how to read secondary material, and how to marry them to archives. Um, 
but I had never taken a course on how to do oral history. And I was very nervous about it, but my advisor, uh, Dr. Johanna Schoen here at Rutgers, told me, just sit down and have a conversation with somebody and have a conversation like you normally would with me. And it did take a little while to get right. The first couple of conversations I had, partly because I was so nervous, were a little stiff, a little more awkward. But with practice, I really found that oral history was such an amazing tool for giving a lot of texture and richness to the project that I wanted to do. And it was also a two-way street that people were very happy to have their stories preserved in some way. And I was very happy to have the texture of their life to make my account of how the anti-rape movement grows and changes more lifelike and more human and not just a story of these state forces and these activist forces bumping up against one another, but something that flows and moves and breathes. So I would encourage everybody, if you're if the period of history that you're interested in allows you to do oral histories, take advantage by all means. You won't regret it. Give us some context. Explain the background of the anti-rape movement that came out of the women's movement of the 1960s and discuss the involvement of women of color. So the anti-violence against women movement Feminist movement against sexual violence, anti-violence movement, these are all synonyms that basically pertain to this period beginning in the late 1960s through the 1970s and into the 1980s, during which women who identified with the women's liberation movement took on rape as a social problem. It is important to recognize that prior to the intervention of the feminist movement against sexual violence, Legally and culturally, rape was regarded as something that happened very rarely and was committed by really people who were socially deviant, men of color, men who were poor and lower class, men who were mentally ill. So the consensus was that this was a very rare phenomenon and that when it did happen, it was defined very narrowly as violently forceful for a woman who really struggled to the point of nearly dying. There was, and there remains, many cultural stereotypes about women who made complaints of sexual violence. The assumption being that most women who claimed rape were in fact lying, or that they behaved in some way that invited the rape, whether that was dressing provocatively, navigating public spaces alone at night, drinking too heavily, the deck, both legally, socially, and culturally, was really stacked against women who wanted to make claims of sexual violence. And police and other related bodies that rape victims would have to interact with, like the medical profession, were really skeptical of women who came forward with claims of rape and treated them very callously. And this altogether led many women, especially women of color who had even less recourse through the criminal justice system, to simply not report their rapes at all and treat the experience of sexual violence as a personal tragedy or moral failing. Then along comes the women's liberation movement in the 60s and 70s, who begin to look at sexual violence as a problem that many of them have experienced in their lives 
And through the practice of consciousness raising, this is really just a practice where women who were part of women's liberation would gather in these small groups and talk about the painful things going on in their lives. They reached the breakthrough that this experience of violence was very pervasive among them, that rape is not this freak incident or this personal failing. It's a political crime against women. It is a way in which men keep women in a state of fear and dependent upon the protection of men. And really central to the feminist movement against sexual violence was that why rape occurred was a result of patriarchy. Because we live in a society that puts men at the top of social order, that privileges men above women, both legally and socially, that is why sexual violence occurs. So therefore, we will only get rid of sexual violence if we can get rid of patriarchy. As far as the role of women of color in this, initially, most of the feminist rape crisis centers that were opened in the 1970s, the earliest ones uh, were opened in Berkeley, California in 1974, and Washington, D.C. also in 1974. Most of these organizations were really run by white women, and they were predominantly white in terms of their volunteers. It was really not until the mid-70s that more women of color, and specifically African-American women, started getting involved in feminist rape crisis centers. There are several reasons for why there was something of a racial split in the emergence of feminist rape crisis centers. And many, especially African-American women, were laboring under some constraints in their community, feeling that if they spoke out publicly about sexual violence, they were in some way denigrating or implicating the men in their community of violence. So this feeling of community loyalty did do a lot to try to silence uh, women of color who spoke out against sexual violence. And it was really women, uh, and African-American women in particular, who began to move beyond some of this community loyalty and enter into tentative partnerships with these feminist rape crisis centers that were mostly white. This introduced a lot of problems initially from the fact that uh, their white colleagues were often sympathetic. Many of them came to the women's liberation movement out of different leftist movements that were explicitly anti-racist, such as the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam protests. Many of them did have difficulty acknowledging the different experience that women of color had in relationship to rape. So this required a lot of uh, reformulation on the part of many African-American women who entered into anti-rape organizations to try to make these organizations more responsive to women of color who used them and specifically victims who used them, many of whom, especially in urban centers where feminist rape crisis centers tended to be, were often poor women of color. You assert that women of color brought a change of direction to the feminist movement against sexual violence. What approaches did women of color foster in anti-rape organizations? Quite a few. So based on my interviews, the first thing that I really noticed was African-American women whom I interviewed really brought the perspective and drove it home to many of their white colleagues that racial oppression and sexual oppression were really inseparable for women of color who experienced sexual violence. This is harkens back to 
the concept of intersectionality that has become very popular in feminist theory and also cultural studies in the past 10 years or so. But this idea that these different forms of systemic oppression combine to create a novel experience of oppression that was not really commensurate in many ways with the sexual oppression that white women were experiencing when they encountered sexual violence. This was really an important intervention on the part of African-American women that pushed them to broaden the definition of gender violence that white women operating within the feminist movement against sexual violence piloted. To give an example from my interviews, Nikenji Ture, who was a very early adopter of feminist rape crisis centers. She was uh, the first general administrator, the first African-American general administrator of the DC Rape Crisis Center. She later found herself in a community education role. But during the late 1970s, she actually ended up in a number of conflicts with her white, with her white colleagues because she wanted to expand the kinds of violence that the rape crisis, rape crisis center was looking at. For example, she was really central in organizing a protest in Washington, D.C., after one of the major hotel chains uh, issued a ruling that their staff and their cleaning staff could not wear their hair in cornrows. And the way that she talked about it to me was that she defined this as an act of psychological violence against black women, telling them that they could not wear their hair in cornrows in order to do their job. This was a form of psychological violence that fell within the scope of the Rape Crisis Center. And she recounted that she really received really aggressive pushback from some of her white colleagues who did not see this as something that was within the scope of the Rape Crisis Center. It didn't fit into their narrow definition of violence against women that was really focused on rape, battering, incest, child sex abuse, sexual harassment. So that was one intervention that women of color brought to the feminist movement against sexual violence. The other had to do with law enforcement, and this was an especially tricky intervention that was brought about. So African-American women in particular, many of the women that I interviewed, came from radical black politics prior to entering into the feminist movement against sexual violence. This ranged from the Black Panther Party to various black radical reading groups, all the way to the National Alliance of Black Feminists. And from these black radical political spaces, and also just the experience of being black in America, they realized that many African-American women had good reason to mistrust law enforcement and often did not report their assaults to law enforcement for various reasons. One being that historically law enforcement has not seen women of color as a victimizable population in the way that they have seen white women to be and therefore are less likely to take their cases very seriously. An example of this comes from my interview with Phyllis Panisse of the Chicago Sexual Assault Services Network, during which she was counseling a, an African-American woman in Chicago who had been sexually assaulted, followed her to the police station, 
Um, they had her attacker in custody. Her blood had been found on his clothing, positively identifying him as her attacker. And she's at the police station. And shortly thereafter, the police announced that they are going to make an arrest of the woman that Phyllis was counseling because she had outstanding warrants for prostitution. So in their mind, the prostitution offenses of this African-American woman outweighed any victimization she experienced um, from being raped by this man. So this instilled mistrust of law enforcement that was historically rooted. And the feminist movement against sexual violence as it developed, and especially as it began to receive funding from government bodies, such as the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration and the Office for Victims of Crime, found themselves really compelled to address sexual violence by encouraging the women that they counseled to report their assaults to the police and supporting these women as they followed through with prosecution. It took some of the women who... I interviewed to say that going through the criminal justice system should not necessarily be our first remedy to sexual violence because so many of the women of color we encounter have such negative experiences with the criminal justice system. So part of that intervention of perhaps not relying on the police as um, as heavily as some members of the feminist movement against sexual violence wanted them to do was to also introduce a broader definition of what healing is in terms of how can victims get past their experience of sexual victimization. And maybe that healing is not simply contingent upon incarcerating the offender, that there is something broader that needs to happen there. Another example of this would be Beryl Fitzpatrick, again, of the Chicago Sexual Assault Services Network. She recalled that when she was a member of the organization, they were dispatched to the Henry Horner Homes, which was a notoriously decrepit public housing project in Chicago. It no longer exists. She was called there by a woman's neighbors. It was a young African-American mother who had been sexually assaulted and was spiraling into a very deep depression, um, could not function on a day-to-day -day basis. And when she got there, what she saw really moved her in that the woman's neighbors had assumed so many caring functions for this woman. They were brushing her hair. They were getting her dressed, bathing her, taking care of her children, cooking for her. They were performing all of this caring labor to help get her back on her feet. They needed the extra helping hand of the Chicago Sexual Assault Services Network. But that was a breakthrough for Beryl Fitzpatrick that what many women of color who suffer sexual violence need more than anything else is this healing and emotional care. And that getting that healing is part of this broader arc of justice. This is not to say that going through the criminal justice system was verboten for this woman. It's to say that the criminal justice system needs to be taken as one of several pathways to justice for the women that they served, and it needed to be complemented by this broader project of healing. Many view the contemporary Me Too movement as a movement to follow through on what went unfinished in previous generations. When you asked your participants about the Me Too movement, what responses did you get? 
Yes, that's a very interesting question. So as I said before, part of our um, process of developing Rapport was to talk about current events. And I was conducting a lot of these interviews over the course of 2019 when, um, and some in late 2018, during which many of the events of Me Too were percolating. So it was really unavoidable to discuss these issues. And many of these women, I think, saw me as someone who was savvy to the issues, who was on their side, who they could talk about these issues in a really um, intimate way. And I should say that everybody who I spoke with unequivocally supported Me Too, were excited to see this development where powerful men who abused women were seemingly finally being held accountable in a real public way. They were excited about this development. Yet that excitement was also somewhat tinged with regret because the necessity for a modern day Me Too movement drove home the point that the anti-rape movement in which they participated in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s did not accomplish its goal of eradicating rape. We wouldn't need Me Too if the feminist movement against sexual violence had achieved its loftiest ambitions. Some took that as an opportunity to reflect on what they feel was some of the missteps of the feminist movement against sexual violence, what they wish they might have done differently. Mary Scott Boria of uh, the Chicago Sexual Assault Services Network, who is to this day engaged in restorative politics and restorative justice operations in Chicago, did reflect that as the movement went forward, particularly as organizations became more entwined with state funders, that this over time did serve to somewhat blunt the radical political critique that the movement had and also constrain some of those organizational possibilities. And that over time, while she doesn't say that that is the main reason why we need Me Too today, she did kind of wistfully reflect upon this as something that may have prevented the movement from achieving all that it could because it sort of lost a bit of that radical edge over time. Uh, Sylvia Rush shared a similar opinion that and she actually left the Chicago Sexual Assault Services Network on somewhat unhappy terms. So she felt perhaps a bit more comfortable making a critique um, that she felt that all of this engagement in state funding turned anti-rape advocacy into this bureaucracy in which they were constantly spending energy, currying favor with district attorneys and having meetings with the mayor's office in ways that she felt took the focus off of the immediate needs of victims. Sylvia Rush is also a kind of person who really favors direct action. In 1985, she single-handedly organized a march for rape survivors through downtown Chicago. So this is someone who clearly values direct action and empowerment of victims, and she really chafed under this bureaucracy. So our interview opened up that conversation of what she felt was that shortcoming that required Me Too to come back about. In the process of doing oral history interviews, what surprised you? What surprised me the most had to be, first, how 
eager many of these women were to share their stories with me. I was worried some of them won't remember or they just will not really have any inclination to sit down and have a conversation with a stranger. And I was very surprised by how eager many of these women were to tell their stories. Some of them, like Loretta Ross and Nikenji Ture, have been interviewed in other capacities before, so they were somewhat more used to the dynamic of an oral history interview. But many of the women who I spoke to Wadia Nelson, Beryl Fitzpatrick were very excited to be a part of this project. First, it excited them that their activism around sexual violence was going to be remembered in some way. So they were excited to see their activism preserved. The other thing that really surprised me in doing these oral interviews was to put the moment of their anti-rape activism in the broader course of their lives. And this was a conscious thing on my part because I really wanted to see how their anti-rape activity emerged and developed over the course of their lives. And then I was very surprised by the extent to which their anti-rape activism informed later activism in their lives, that many of them took the lessons that they learned from this movement about the function of power, about organizing, about what individuals need to overcome violence and overcome oppression, and applied it to many different movements. These different movements ranged from HIV, Um, prevention activism, to welfare rights, to divestment from South Africa in the 1990s, to marijuana legalization. They really had very extensive um, activist resumes. Um, Public housing was another uh, issue. Various forms of economic rights, reproductive rights, that their anti-rape activism really kind of built into them this desire to create more social change so that people can live freer and more open lives and participate within our society as equal members with much latitude to determine the way that their lives were going to go. So even though many of them had relatively brief tenures in anti-rape activism, some only, you know, four or five years, I think the shortest uh, tenure of anyone I interviewed was two years, it still had this impact that echoed through the rest of their lives and that they are still fiercely proud of. Through doing the interviews, what information was new or revelatory that perhaps diverged from other sources that you used? The interviews really show the dynamic presence of women of color within the anti-rape movement. Much of the paper archive for this movement is based on activists and organizations who preserved their papers or their organization's papers and then donated them to an archive. The other source of paper material for this project comes from state sources. These are publications that are sent out by organizations and agencies within the federal government that support anti-rape activity like the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration or the National Center for the Prevention and Control of Rape. Taking just those paper materials on their own really downplays the extent to which women of color were present within this movement. Their names are mentioned within, for instance, the newsletters of 
anti-rape organizations that um, I go through through this project. And their names are present and their meetings of third world caucuses, for example, are listed within these newsletters. And occasionally you'd get a trace of some of the issues they might have raised at a board meeting. But it really does not give you the full sense of their presence within this movement. That is why it was so important for me for this project to do oral histories, to capture those elements of Black women's experience that escaped the archival record. How will the oral history interviews fit into your dissertation? I plan to use the oral history interviews to flush out the daily operation of the anti-rape organizations that I chronicle as it relates to the presence and function of women of color within these spaces. As I mentioned before, much of the print archive does not give a full account of their activism. To give an example, in Philadelphia, Women Organized Against Rape, they had an organization within the organization called the Third World Caucus that was meant to be a sort of supportive network for women of color in the organization. And it became the space from which a lot of changes in the organization were accomplished. But we don't necessarily have minutes from all of those meetings. So to have interviews with Deborah Johnson and Samia Cherry, it gives a richer account of what it was like to be in those spaces every day and what it was like to try to reformulate anti-rape advocacy from the inside as a state was trying to kind of reshape it from the outside. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and recording this podcast with me. Thank you so much. This is the Rutgers Oral History Archives podcast. I'm Kate Rizzi. This was recorded in the Rutgers Class of 1948 sound booth at the Rutgers Oral History Archives, 1 Spring Street in downtown New Brunswick. The podcast is by Kate Rizzi. Sound engineering is by Donald Coger, Sean Illingworth, and Kate Rizzi.